Welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight is on Rishi Deer. Rishi is the creative visionary behind Montreal band Elephant Stone, for which he's the songwriter, singer, bassist, and sitar player. Rishi spoke with me from his home studio in the iconic Canadian city just 60 miles north of the U.S. border. He shared his unique perspective as a first-generation child of immigrants on diverse topics like family, assimilation, music, the COVID crisis, and what he's witnessed happening to his neighbors down south. Please check out Elephant Stone's new digital single, American Dream, wherever you stream your music from. And now on to my conversation with Rishi Deer. You're based in Montreal, obviously, yes? Yeah, yeah. And uh, did you grow up there? Yeah, yeah, born and raised, yeah. Tell me a little bit about your family background in that. Were your parents expats? Were they from Canada? Sort of like, why Montreal and... Why Montreal? Yeah. So my mom, she, my parents are both from India and Punjab in the north. My mom is like one of like, I think like 10 children. Wow. So she was the eldest daughter. So she was kind of raising the family. Then I think at one point she's like, I need to do my own thing. So they, they had an aunt. She had an aunt in Montreal. So she's like, oh, I'm going to go do my nursing school in Montreal. She came here. The aunt decided to keep her. This is a crazy. Yeah, the, the aunt decided to keep her as a um, kind of like a slave, like kept her locked in the house, wouldn't let her leave, and she had to take care of the kid and clean the house. And so that was then my mom. This was in Sherbrooke, just outside of Montreal. Then my mom just one day said, "Screw this," and she just left. Anyways, yeah, she made it. She did it on her own. She went to her school, went back to India, arranged marriage with my dad. So then they came back to Montreal and yeah, Montreal. It was, wow. a, yeah, no, that's, this, there, there was like, it, like, cause um, that was like the Trudeau era, like Trudeau senior. <laughs> and so there was a big immigrant influx, especially from India, like, especially from Punjab. So growing up where I did, there was a pretty big Indian community in Brossard, just off the island. And what, um, what accounts for that? What, what brought the original immigrants over? Do you know? Well, it's like, I think back then, um, everyone wanted to go to America, but it was hard to get in. And then in their mind, they're like, oh, Canada's America. Let's just go to Canada. And they want us. <laughs> they want us to come. Let's just go there. So that was, that was a big thing, especially, you know, like go to Vancouver, the like huge Indian population there. I'm not sure what their, I think the Indian connection in Vancouver goes further back, but for the East Coast and stuff, it was like that. You know, like I have a lot of friends in the U.S., whose parents, uh, they're, uh, from, they're from Gujarat, one of the provinces in India, and uh, they would come to America, and their whole thing is a lot of them were, um, I think, Jains, so they need to have, like, a lot of vegetables for their cooking, so they would buy, like, motels and set up a garden in the back and raise a family in motels, so that's why, like, I think, like, 80% of motels in America are owned by Indian people. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, my friend, uh, my friend Chirag Bhakta, he, he did some of the artwork on my albums, but he grew up in a motel in Jersey. And so he put a, a picture book together of all these photos of the families and their motels. It's called 
It's really interesting. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. it, it's, it, it's always fascinating to me how there are these strange pockets um, throughout North America <laughs> where, where people from different parts of the world settled and there's no obvious reason. Like, how did an Arabic population end up outside of Detroit? Or here yeah. in Seattle, it's, um, there's, a, there's a pretty big Somali population and a pretty big um, uh, Eritrean population. Okay. And so it's just fascinating that some, some people come for some initial reason, establish a beachhead, and then it just sort of, it creates a, a sort of, uh, I don't know, a Silk Road type of phenomenon where there's now a connection back to the home country. Maybe money's flowing both ways or people start to visit back and forth. And before you know it, there's a population established. Yeah, like I know, because in Montreal, like we have a really big uh, Hasidic community. Yeah. Um, we have a big Irish community. We have a big Italian community and a French community. And then I watched this documentary on a flight once. It was just talking about Montreal and because we have a, a Saint Laurent Boulevard. It's basically cuts north to south up the island. And that does, divides the island in east and west. And they just talk about how the Jewish population settled here. Then the Italians and the Irish mingled French because they both they all were Catholic. It's just really interesting on how much, that's why like when you walk around, you see, oh, that's the Hasidic community and oh, that's the Portuguese. And it's just, yeah. yeah. No, it's always yeah, interesting how the, how the new world was made, right? Yeah, in Montreal in particular, I think people don't realize, um, first of all, it's an incredibly cosmopolitan city. Oh, yeah. Um, it's a, it's a beautiful, I, I always tell people, if you're going to go to Montreal, you go for like that two weeks of summer <laughs> in mid-August, um, because you, yeah, there exactly. are a few places that are more beautiful than Montreal in sort of mid-late summer. Um, yeah, we're actually in the middle so, of a heat wave right now. It's crazy hot. It's like 34 Celsius, which is like 100 maybe. Fahrenheit. Wow. Yeah, it's wow. crazy. It's not even summer yet here, so this is... That's interesting because we're having a heat wave here as well. It's it's about um, it's probably about eighty Fahrenheit today, and I think it's supposed to go up a little more tomorrow. That's that's very unseasonable. Yeah. yeah. No. Exactly. Yeah. That's yeah, amazing. So, is there a definable or a recognizable sort of Southeast Asian experience in Montreal? Like, did you grow up at, in a community? Was it what was it like? What was your experience? Um, or wow. or do you identify as Canadian first? Yeah, well, it's it's a like I grew up in the suburbs, uh, so it was pretty, it's pretty mixed. Like a lot of a lot of Indian people and stuff, but you know, it's like it's funny. I I went to elementary school, and all the white kids were uh, Ukrainian, so I thought every white person was Ukrainian <laughs> <laughs> for like my whole like I think for years because you know like. <laughs> Because everyone else was like Indian, Chinese, and all the white, the, the handful of white people were Ukrainian. I had this like. It's like some alternate universe yeah. where like the Eastern Bloc won the Cold War. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember that feeling. I'm like, wow, interesting. I'm like, oh, you're Jewish? I'm like, what is Jewish? I'm like, go to high school. But um, yeah, no, I mean, growing up, I mean, it's interesting because I'm first generation. So your parents come here with nothing and they just build, they work hard. My dad's a doctor. My mom was a nurse. They pursued this, like the dream. They got the big house, the bigger house, the bigger house, the cars. And so you're kind of, and then they expect you to pursue the same ideals as they did. And unfortunately I chose music, but also I also did my engineering degree. I'm still Indian. So my whole life my dad was like, at one point he accepted the music thing. He's like, fine, but at least have a fallback plan don't drop it. I didn't drop out of school. I, I did my engineering, but 
growing up as a first generation Indian, it's always really confusing because you don't really, in the marketing and media and pop culture, you're not really represented. Like the Asians, an Asian person is, was not represented at all in pop culture in the 80s and 90s. It was either white or black. It was literally white or black. And so you're always kind of trying to find where you fit in that color spectrum in some ways, culturally. And it's interesting because a lot of my Indian friends got more into like hip hop. And I got more, I just was like Beatles and, and grunge and stuff and rip hop and stuff. It's just funny going that line and just uh, trying to find your identity and, and parents trying to instill some ideal of what it is to be Indian or Southeast Asian. Like, you know, it's like, um, it's like we're Hindu, but we eat beef. You know, and I never understood that as a kid. And then at one point I just said, no, it doesn't make sense. If I don't eat beef. And just trying to understand that going to Sunday school. But it's funny, my parents, rather than speaking to me in Hindi or Punjabi at home, they spoke to me in their kind of faulty, broken English because they wanted <laughs> me to speak perfect English. Yeah. So my only exposure to Hindi or Punjabi would be like the Bollywood movies we watch or Sunday school. And so, uh, so I have a terrible grasp of the language. And also in English, it, like for years, my mom would always talk about getting a, a crunt from when, like a shock, a crunt or something. Okay. And then I was in physics class in Egypt and my teacher's talking about current. <laughs> and then I was thinking... It's like, you have to be careful with the current because you can get a major shock. And I was like, current, current. Like, oh my God. I went home. I'm like, mom, are you trying to say current? She's like, yeah, current. I'm like, oh. <laughs> I just heard this back with me. But anyways. I made my day. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I'm it's like, a, you know, I'm still a 15 year old at the yeah. inside. So. <laughs> but no, it's, but that's what it is. It's just funny. It's just like trying to find this identity and, kind of rejecting Southeast Asian culture and like all my friends at one in high school were like that I hung out with like the white grungy crowd right that was my crowd it's just always you're always trying to figure out where you fit in that whole world and and I think things have become more multicultural now where it's less defined that way but uh yeah no and that goes into the music world and being a musician and touring and not just not seeing many people of Southeast Asian background on stage or, you know, so I remember when Soundgarden came out, that was like an yeah. epiphany for me. I'm like, Whoa, there's an Indian guy. <laughs> I love this band, like or a corner shop. I'm like an Indian guy. And he's amazing. So, you know, I always have a soft spot for that. Well, I think what, you know, uh, the context for the, for that line of questioning was not <laughs> to ask you to be the representative of Southeast Asian culture from Montreal. Um, <laughs> But more because I, I think something that's very interesting um, sort of in your story or about your, your career is, um, and I, I want to dial back just a little bit and say, I'm curious as to, you mentioned that your parents um, ate beef. Mm. Is that a, um, an assimilation? Is that, a, is that a, a westernization aspiration on there? Like, how do, where do you frame that? How, what does that mean to you? Like, where does that sit? I guess it has to come back to values, whether your values are something that are something you believe in or if it's something that's kind of pushed upon you. 
and I, I don't know. I, I, I never questioned this as a child, but they were like, yeah, but at least we're vegetarian on Tuesday. You know, it's just, it's, it's a hypocrisy. You know, it's like, I'm not a fan of religion. I grew up as a Hindu, being raised as a Hindu, being told this is what it is. Um, then kind of just not really getting into it much. And then at one point in my 20s, I kind of started reading the Bhagavad Gita. I, I, I searched for it myself and I found some great messages in there. But as I've gotten older and had kids, and it's just, I'm like, this is all bullshit. I mean, this is... This gives nothing to anybody. It's just like, it's just like pulling the wool over people's eyes, not giving them easy answers to life. And it's a thing like the beef thing. Like, I don't know, like you don't eat the beef, but then you come here and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm in the West and McDonald's. The fact that I can have McDonald's every week is a status symbol, I guess, at one point. They're like, right, we could right, afford right. to do that. And also, it's like also wanting you to assimilate within Western society, but at the same time saying, you, you're going to marry an Indian girl. You're, we're going to have an arranged. I remember that was the thing I was a kid too. <laughs> I'm like, it's like therapy for me. So my, my parents always tell me, oh, we're going to find an Indian girl for you. I'm like, I didn't really know what that they were talking about. I was like seven years old. I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. And then I get older and my wife, she's not Indian. She's, she's Scottish. And I remember that she was like, the first girlfriend I had, I was like 19 and the pushback from that was shocking. I remember I had like, I'm like, dude, I'm like, you guys just have to relax. I mean, what, what are you fighting against? It's just this whole road to where I am now kind of growing up being told you're one thing, but not really knowing what you are. You kind of, my whole, each step I really had to make up my own life philosophy and, values because everyone's trying to tell me this is what it is this is what it is and, and just having an upbringing where it's very confusing very confusing like my whole life is very confusing that way where being told to live a certain way but then the people telling you that aren't really you know walking walking you now they're not really doing yeah. what so but yeah no it's and yeah and to where i am now it's like my identity musically personally it's like I've not, I, every, like religion to me is not something I push on my kid. My kids ask me what God is. And I'm like, I'm like, wow. I mean, I always talk like Stephen Hawkins says, like, I can't explain the beginning of the universe. Just the fact I can't do that. What was before the big bang. So maybe there is a God, maybe there isn't. And I keep trying to push science as the ultimate truth where you're always trying to prove that something is wrong. You know, religion always tries to prove that something is right, but science always tries to prove that something not right is incorrect. And I think that's the way to go. Yeah, I think that's a fascinating contrast. One is the, the, the stripping away to try to get to, to find the truth, and the other is sort of building an, an edifice um, yeah. around exactly. the truth. Yeah. A lot of that, I think, well, there's, there's so much uh, intermediation as well for people between themselves and and whatever their ultimate truth is that it's a lifelong quest. I think, I don't think that's necessarily <laughs> unique to uh, any one of our, uh, mm-hmm. any one of our, our, our cultural uh, constructs. But I, I think, so where I was going before I digressed into that question about your parents was, so something that, that is super fascinating to me about you is that you bring in a very non sort of self-conscious seeming way, a melding of, you know, your two backgrounds in, like directly in your music, like you play very westernized music and you use the most 
well-known Eastern instrument to Western ears, um, or, 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 or one of me. And, I, and I've seen you speak in other um, interviews. You use the word uh, kitsch a lot. And I think that's very interesting. And one, because, you know, it is true. There's always the peril of that, right? Whether it's, whether it's a, a Western person and cultural appropriation or when you were speaking earlier about growing up and not seeing a lot of role models, the thought I was having was, yeah, and even worse than that, a lot of times it's like parody stereotypical role models. Like that's, there's a cruelty in that that is hard to unpack, um, but it's definitely there. Um, regardless of the intention. So I think it's fascinating. So that you wind up playing Western psychedelic music in a tradition that has existed here for 50 years and, you know, and, and with an instrument that's existed thousands of years. How do you think about that? Is it a natural thing for you to embrace? How intentional did you have to be? And what did you have to sort through to say, um, can, I, can I do this in a way that's, that's not a stereotype? Yeah, it's funny because, like, like I mentioned, when I was a teenager, I kind of uh, rejected my Indian heritage and culture. But I was like, yeah. I was like, this is not cool. This is not. Like, you've been trying to force this my whole life. I don't want any part of this. And so, uh, it's not something I ever thought about until it was February two, <laughs> February nineteen ninety eight. I think we went on a family trip to India. And remember, I just started dating my, my wife, then my girlfriend at the time. And I was like, oh, I was like, oh, I, was like I don't want to go. I, we just started dating. Then my brother was like, let's go, let's go. And I was like, fine. And I was like, let's go. And we were to meet family there. And it was really on that trip where I kind of opened my eyes more to like my heritage and who I was. I, I did find myself on that trip meeting family and just reconnecting with it. That's when I gave up uh, eating. I stopped eating beef and I bought my first sitar. Cause I was in band at the time and you know, I was like, Oh, I should get something. Oh, I'll get a sitar. And then my aunt uh, who's passed away. Um, she's this great classical vocalist. She was really excited. She gave me some of her Ravi Shankar cassettes and stuff. So I, I brought that back home and I just started messing around with it. And, you know, I, at that time, the whole idea of kitsch, like didn't really factor in. Cause like I got a sitar and I'll just do what I want. And like, you know, like my reference point was like the Beatles and Bollywood and Bollywood was kind of kitschy or like Peter Sellers and the party and stuff like that. So it's, um, so it kind of, from that point when it evolved, I started incorporating it more, but at the same time, like I was using it in a way that was kitschy, you know, it was a gimmick. And uh, I did that, excuse me, Ben for a while. It was like, just like the, it was adding Eastern flavor to stuff. This is my old band, um, the High Dials that I was in. Mm -hmm. It wasn't my project. It wasn't so, I felt kind of, I felt, it felt like a sham to me in some ways. Like I'm, I'm adding this Eastern exoticism to this music, but it doesn't really belong in it. And so that kind of sent me kind of searching, like, what do I want to do? Like, and so I left that band with the, uh, the, the purpose of actually creating sitar music that is built around that with my understanding. And I was taking sitar lessons since I started in 2000, taking lessons. So by taking the lessons, it made me appreciate my heritage. It's funny, my, my teacher is and was uh, this German guy, Uwe Neumann, looks like Charles Manson, uh, 
he's German, but he doesn't know can. I had to t- tell him like, you don't know can or craft work? <laughs> Anyways, I digress. But um, meeting him, he lived in India for 10 years, did his master's there. And so he had this like German precision, but also this Indian aloofness and constant like spiritualism about him. So he kind of, he taught me about India, about the culture, not about religion, but just the purity of the culture and the music and learning about Hindustani classical music makes you realize the power of that culture because it's the music is the heartbeat of like India, what it was, what it is. And especially Hindustani classical, it's, it's not as tied to the gods. It's tied to everyday life. It's tied to the moon, the sun. So taking those sitar lessons was a huge, it's funny now that I've, now I'm saying it, I'm realizing it more now that was really what, help me help solidify my musical ideals my my kind of world life outlook as well and maybe appreciate it as more of a serious art form rather than just like kind of a kitschy thing and at that point taking more serious getting more to songwriting and yeah i, I did it because i remember um the high dolls were on tour in detroit and i met this guy he ran a record label i can't remember the label but he was indian and he went to me one day and he's like He's like, I like what you're doing to the band, but I'd like to see what you would do on your own. Wow. Like we, we need, he said to me, he's like, we need more representation of Southeast Asian people in the wow. indie music world. And he said that, and I was like, yeah. And then I, that stuck with me. I'm like, in some ways I do a perfect, I do have, I'm in a position where I can give something and I could represent people. And I've been lucky, like I've met many people on tour Indian people who go up to me and go, thank you for doing this. You know, we don't see many Daisies doing this. And it's like, yeah. Uh, are you familiar with the, um, it seems that there, there's a bit of a, a movement or a contingent within the, um, especially in the New York uh, jazz scene, Southeast Asian, there's sort of a group of guys that, that perform together. I, I guess the sort of face of it might be uh, VJI yep. or Reza yep, Bossi. Yeah, yeah, my my friend Shrog Buck does done some artwork for him. So, I'll tell you, it, it, some of the more interesting. I mean, it, it makes total sense, even if you have a uh, the most superficial knowledge of Indian classical music. But some of the most lyrical improvisers right now, and some of the most interesting compositional structures. Yeah, I mean, if if you do have a a background in Indian classical, like my old guitar player Gab, um, he's a jazz guy, and we would talk about music and. He'd be like, yeah, that's kind of a jazz thing. Because like, I, I have a hard time understanding jazz. I'm like, what exactly is happening? But I understand in, in classical music where it's like 90% improvisation, right? And you're, you're building on a theme. So just that idea. I mean, it's in, yeah, because like my background in that, like I'm not, I don't have the chops to really do proper Indian classical. I, I've done a few performances and it's always like, eh, <laughs> not that great. But my, my understanding of that, I, I has definitely influenced a lot of my music. Like I do pull it out every now and then, and that's what it is, especially live. Like I'll do long improvisation passages and stuff. And it's a very deep, deep music. And I could definitely see if they do, I don't know if they, if those New York guys do have Indian classical background, but uh, it translates into something really interesting. Definitely when you put in different idiom. Yeah. Around the same time you were on that family trip, um, I saw a show at Town Hall in New York, 
and it was parents and children. So it was Ravi with Anushka performing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then they were the opening, they had the opening slot and the headliner was um, Ravi Coltrane and Alice Coltrane. Wow. <laughs> it was such a powerful evening of music and it was, you know, and it made total sense, right? Like it was yeah. all improvisational, um, all within the same sort of, well, you know, certainly generational, they were all, you know, the parents and the children um, of the same generations, but it was, I, I can, I can go exactly to where I, my vantage point, I could see it all in my mind's eye. Like it was yesterday. <laughs> um, phenomenal. It was absolutely phenomenal. So it seems like reading your biography and, and sort of tracking what you've done over the last 10 or 12 years, I had this, listen, I can't think of a, of a softer way to ask the question. So I'm just <laughs> going to ask you and that risk of maybe offending you. It seems like you've drawn a tight circle around or a tighter and tighter circle around what you do. Meaning you talked about the high dials. So it wasn't really your concept or your group. And now you look at where you are now and it's like, you have a thing that you write, you play the music. I understand you, you're, you're, you manage the, the business yeah. side or you, well, I, I record, and now I, you've got the studio. Like you, yeah. you've, you've kind of become a, <laughs> a cottage industry for yourself. And I, I, and I wonder too, am I perceiving that incorrectly? Like, are you drawing inward or is it more about you're trying to articulate a vision? Like, what is it I'm seeing there? I mean, it's, it, it's in some ways, I have been a bit of a control freak, but in a, in a, in a way that looking back in the early days, I didn't have the confidence to really back that up. Like, I didn't really know what I was doing, but I was like, Oh, I want to do my thing. And, Cause like, you know, like the hideouts, I was in the band for like 11 years and I was managing that band. I was booking, but I was a side guy and, and I wanted my own thing. I wanted my own thing. So when I started Elephant Stone, it was really just my thing on my own. And I brought friends in and then it kind of evolved. And it's always been my singular vision, like the whole time, like I write the songs and, but now, and, but it was always like, always struggling to kind of get it going. But now that like we, ever since we got, I built the studio in my house, it's just like, it just makes sense. Now I feel like I can make music for the rest of my life and not be dependent on others to get my vision out there. And it's like, and also just with the cast of people and the, that I work with, like it's my good friends it's people I've been working with for years. Everyone's got their own projects. I mean, it's not, especially no one's touring now, everyone's home. So it's like, it's changed things, you know, like in being in bands, it's like, oh, you can't be in that band because you're in my band, but it doesn't matter anymore. Like no one's going anywhere. Yeah. And, and no, but um, it's definitely like, I'm very driven. I'm, I can multitask. <laughs> I'm a technical writer as well as a day job. So I'm good at multitasking. So it's just like, I've built my ecosystem, like I, I'm, I'm my own label. I record, I'm, I engineer my own albums. Now I write the songs. I, everything I'm doing is because I've spent years trying to navigate the music industry and it's always like, it's just, it always falls flat. You're like, Oh, we got a manager. Oh, the manager did absolutely nothing. We got a label. Oh, the label did nothing. Like, we got this. And the only people I really love, are business managers because they manage your, they help you with understanding money and booking agents. 
because they do such a hard job and, and, and the publicists, you know, those are people that I see have very valuable positions. Managers, it's a thankless job if you're managing an artist because the artists are crazy usually. So that's why, <laughs> that's why I've decided, yeah, at this point, like I just have my own thing. I'm, I'm not really, and also just going to record labels and being like, can you please put on my record? And now being a label, I understand that from a label standpoint, like you're not gonna, you're not dying to put out an artist's record. It's just like, okay, I should put out a label. Yeah, this guy's pretty good. Let's roll with this. And it's just timing yeah. and stuff. But definitely I've, I've pulled it into this type thing where I'm not reliant on anyone else to make things happen. Cause I'm also very impatient. If I have an idea and I want to get it out there, like in this isolation thing, I wrote this, I wrote a song called American dream. And then I recorded it like right away and got it out right away just because I'm like, I can do this. And it's coming out tomorrow on the DSPs, but yeah, no, it's, it's nice being able to do this. It makes my life much more sustainable. I'm home. I can be with my kids more. The fact that my studio's here, my daughter sings on my albums and stuff. So. That's amazing. How does she feel about that? Oh, she loves it. Yeah, yeah, she, yeah, she, 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 yeah, she sang on the radio with me a few times as well. My wife sings on the record. So no, it's good. It's like, I know exactly what I want to do. I know the music I want to make. I mean, I have Elephant Stone, but I also have like my Acid House Ragos project. I have my side project Mean with my other friends. So, you know, I'm, I'm older now. I'm in my, I'm in well into my forties now. So it's, it's time you to gotta, you... <laughs> <laughs> gotta buckle up. <laughs> yeah. I gotta buckle up and, and find something that works and that I can keep doing. Yeah. In the alternate reality where the pandemic didn't happen, where would you be right now? Would were you, you had the record? You, you, Hollow came out like right. right before this all hit, right? Yeah, we. I got, I got back from Europe like in, uh, wow, when was it? Like mid February. And I got back. I got back right before everything. I remember being in Europe and I was kind of talking about like really no no, and but where are we were I would have just got back from a U.S. tour. Yeah. I, got, I came back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had, well, postponed. Until, like, because we had this tour booked and we're, we're postponing it until for South by Southwest next year, which that's a long shot. The South by saying they're going to do it. So we're just rescheduling. Um, yeah, because we had a big South by Southwest run. So we were supposed to do this. I was supposed to do festivals this summer. I was supposed to go back to Europe in September. Wow. So... so one, I, when, I was, when I was doing some preparation for talking to you, um, I thought, I, I saw it, I want to make sure I, I'm quoting this correctly. Uh, I read an interview with you where you were talking about dystopian art. And the line that killed me was, it's never so far-fetched to not be believable. Yeah. And uh, I, it, so are, are these dystopian times in any way? Oh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, when isn't it, right? It's always something. And yeah, it's, uh, yeah. What, what did I just finish reading? Oh, I read, uh, do, uh, Android's dream of, uh, electric sheep, the, yeah. the one that inspired Blade Runner. And, um, yeah, it's always like, you know, like black mirror and all. I love dystopian stuff because it always feels it's, we're almost there, you know? And right now it's, I don't know if it's just, I mean, it's just, I don't even know how to frame what's happening now. I mean, 
like hollow i wrote that that was like a concept album kind of a dystopian concept album about the end of times i don't think this is the end of times but it's a lot it's a lot to take in right now it's not the good times that's for sure so it's not utopia yeah, i, I think yeah, well, <laughs> the interesting thing is that times don't really end i think no. that every not generation perhaps but every two or three generations have their end of times sort of mythos mm-hmm. and um i guess for us the last time it swung around was maybe the turn of the millennium i remember at that time reading a lot how reading y2k a lot about, right yeah of course y2k <laughs> and there was a lot of references at that point to the turn of the 19th to the 20th century there was all kinds of doomsday cults and you know end of the worlders and um the world doesn't end maybe it gets progressively worse (laughs) i don't know i was pretty convinced for a while and it's hard to it's hard to go back to this point in time but i was pretty convinced for a while that we were on this like steady progressive march you know i really could not imagine it's so funny you know as an american you know the the obama years were fascinating because so much happened here so quickly socially right you know we we got medicine we had same-sex marriage we had the state's rights in terms of drug legalization but at the same time you know you had the the stop and frisk policies at the you know in in the cities around the country and um this sort of bubbling undercurrent of resentment this sort of class resentment that, um, you know, I'm sure there are many more well-informed sort of cultural observers than I am who saw it coming, but I, I was so blissfully unaware. I, I thought it was finally the, the end of the angry white man in this country. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I I remember, yeah. Well, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, go on, go on. And, and in the weeks leading up to the, the 2016 election, I remember people saying to me, I'm afraid Trump's going to win. And I, and I can remember saying to people, sitting on a bar stool saying, no way. Like, this is just the last gasp <laughs> of the angry white man. He knows his time is through. And he, this is it. This is the death knell. This is what it looks like when the body is, is struggling for life. Um, it's not pretty. But it's going to be fine a couple of weeks from now. And um, wow, how wrong you were! <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, as an as an outsider looking into America, I mean, like when I wrote that song, "American Dream," I mean, it's kind of like people have this idea of what America is and what it stands for, but it's built on like it's built on the back backs of like slavery and like yeah. and murder and genocide, and it's like by a kind of angry white men and it's and a lot of those guys are still angry and trying to hold on to stuff i mean it's yeah. scary i mean like I, I i have such a hard time understanding how people get by there in america now like all my friends are artists like if you don't have health care what do you do if like people i've seen people post like i'm not feeling well but i can't afford to go to the hospital i'm like why like what what is the country doing for you you know, like you're paying your taxes, you're a citizen, they should be taking care of you. And it seems like a no brainer to me. And it's just, it's just exhausting. So when I wrote this song, it's kind of, I wrote it from the perspective of Canadian friends of mine. A lot of them, they 
went to America, went to America. They're pursuing the American dream. They went like, you know, as a kid growing up right next, just next door. I mean, America was the all, be all end all for us, you know, had everything. And then as you get older, you're like, Oh, you start seeing the cracks more. And you're like, okay, well it's still great. But now it's just like, I have a hard time seeing why my friends moved down there and be in the situation right now, especially. And, Cause like we, we're fed up here. Maybe it's the media that really feeds like the darkness of America. Right. Tess, that's, that's all we hear about. So I'm like, but I know it's not all like that. And I see my friends, like they're, they're living, they're having families, they're happy, but I don't know. It just, it, it, get, it causes me a lot of anxiety. Just wondering how people can really, it's like you were saying, you, you thought it was like, this is the last gasp of the angry white male, but it's, they're not going down without a fight, you know. So. No, and they they seemingly roared back with a vengeance. <laughs> oh, yeah, <it's... laughs> they didn't take they didn't take defeat lightly. <laughs> oh, it's just yeah, it's it's no, I mean, I mean, healthcare, education. I mean, that's like the cornerstones of building a good society. And if you just cut funding from that, and, and people don't have access to that. You're going to get, the, you're going to consistently get these angry white men who are trying to repress people and just like show off which guns, that their guns bigger than yours. And it's just like, yeah, it's, it's difficult. It's hard to, it's hard to remain an optimist. And I think what it forces people to do is you get, I don't know if tribalism is the right word, but it forces you to focus on the things you can control. And it's, exactly. it's yourself, it's your family, it's your community, all things that could be net positive. But you have to think that there's a larger societal cause. You don't need more tribalism in this country. Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not the United States, right? They're not united at all. So, so what's your hope with, with something like the American Dream sing, uh, single? Like, what, who's the audience for that? And sort of what's the why behind it? That's a good question. Uh, it's funny, throughout this whole pandemic thing, the role of music and arts and culture. I mean, at one point in the beginning, it was like, we have to support the artists. It matters and all this live streaming. But now I've noticed that people, like, it's funny because I, I wrote it at the beginning of this pandemic. It felt like there was this need for a change. I don't know for change, but there was, this emo there was this emotion everyone felt, this connectedness. And I wrote it, when did I write it? What was the instigator? Oh, the inst well, instigator that. I mean, it's funny. It's a song I've been trying to write for years. It's fun, oddly yeah. enough. I've, I've had this song for a long time. I've been trying to find the right way to say it. And it was when I read my, my wife, she's like, look at this. Like they're saying it's been one month since no kids been shot. It hasn't been a school shooting in a month because the schools are closed. <laughs> we solved the problem yeah and i thought wow that's so fucked up and and i i mean there's the lyric and it's like one month since no kids should been shot uh not so much winning as all the schools are locked and i mean it's just it's just something that i don't like going on facebook rants about stuff you know i i i, I say what i have to say through my songs and American Dream is the song that I've been trying to write for years. It, it definitely spurred by Trump. I mean, I remember I was on tour, U.S. Canada in 2016, right around the election. I was in BC in, uh, and I was in, at a hotel at the gym working out next to this woman. And 
Giuliani was on talking about Trump, some crazy thing. And I just looked at her and I said, crazy times. And then she's like, and then she went on the, she just said, well, he's not racist. And I was like, oh shit, what is this? And then it turns out she's an American. I'm like, okay, cool. And then I started talking to her. I'm like, I'm really curious to hear the other side. And, and I was being very friendly, but she just, I, I was challenging her and asking her questions and she didn't want any of that. And she just got really flustered and left and stuff. And, and so just like the, the fact that people don't want to hear the truth, people don't want to hear what's happening. Like it's a fake news. That's like a fake news. If it's, if the news is saying something, it's wrong. And logic has no purpose. Like, <laughs> like, you know, and so it just kind of, it's been bothering me for years that, the society can, these people have a voice when there's no basis to anything they're saying. And it's when, when they do speak, it's, it's, they're, it's spoken with hate, like vitriol and anger. And so I wrote this song and I don't know who it's for. It's ultimately, it's me just saying what I want to say. I don't know who the audience is. Uh, I remember when I released it on, I wrote it, recorded it really quickly. I put it out as soon as I could. It was on Bandcamp and I sent out my newsletter and a bunch of some fans wrote back to me and just were like, get the, get the fuck out of our country. He's like, you're a dirtbag or something like that. You know, I, that, was the, that was the emails I got. I was like, really? I don't know. I don't feel like music at this moment in time is having much impact in the world. People, yeah. people it's a weird time for arts. We, keep saying how important arts and culture is to getting society moving again, getting the economy moving. But people, I don't think people are seeing the value in that right now. Yeah. I, 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 that's an interesting topic because I think it's, it's, it's not disputable at sort of the, the macro level, but I, I've, I've always chalked that up just to the fact that there's no, there's no, community outlets anymore we could we could all choose what media we want we could all choose what point of view we want there's no such thing really as a you know i mean it blows my mind in america that you could sell 80 or 100,000 records and have a number one album you yeah. know in a country of 350 million people like it's basically irrelevant to have a number one record unless you're on a major record label and allows them to tell the story when they go call radio or they call Jimmy Kimmel or whatever it is that they're doing on your behalf. In terms of cultural impact, it means nothing. But um, it's like what you talked about. You talked about a tribe, right? And that's what it's becoming with, you can really section yourself off to specific things. It's just building this, building this tribe mentality for better, for worse. Yeah. Very insular. Yeah. And I think your point earlier, like, so you, if you how do you extrapolate that out and where does it end? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have the answers. All right. So tell me this. Let's try to, let's try to find, let's, let's, let's rescue the, um, let's rescue the, the anticipation for the future. I, I was going to say optimism, but let's at least, <laughs> if we can't aspire to optimism, let's aspire to anticipation for the future. American dream hits the DSPs tomorrow. Yeah. What are you working on next? What's the, what's the next fun thing? Oh, I'm, I'm writing a French uh, rock opera. All right. <laughs> yeah, I've, uh, yeah, it's good. Like I said, the fact that I have my studio, um, I'm just coming down every day and just working on new demos. So I have, uh, yeah, I've been trying to write. So I've, like, I did hollow the, the kind of rock opera thing. And I was like, oh, my drummer's like, we should do a song in French. 
And so I've been listening to like a lot of uh, Jacques Dutron and stuff like that. And so I was like, yeah, I have, I, I have this riff. It's funny. It's a riff that I made up as a joke. Uh, I was in the Black Angels back in 2012. And I remember we got drunk backstage, uh, Christian Bland and I, and we, we were just joking around writing songs. And I came up with this riff. It was called, uh, I, was called I think the song was called Mr. Horny or something. It was really bad. And, but it was funny. And like, it was an ongoing joke we had for a while. Like, oh, we're going to start a band called the Mockingbirds or something like that. Or the Woody Woodpeckers. And so I had this riff and I was like, oh, it sounds really kind of like French. Yeah, yeah. And so I kind of re-brought the riff back. I kind of rewrote the song and it just grew into this mammoth. So my friend Felix Diat, he's a great singer-songwriter. He's helping me write the lyrics. And so I'm like sending the tracks to the rest of the band. I'm like, what do you think of this? Just like, yes, I am a control. F- well, I don't know if I'm a control freak anymore. I, I'm much more aware of my uh, limitations. And I know that my sole vision isn't the best vision. I need people to give their input and I need to be challenged. I like being challenged. That's, I always, I don't like having work, playing, working with yes people. I just want someone to go, no, well, why don't you try this? And like, I don't know about this. My wife is the same way. She, like I always play her the song first or she'll tell me if it's good or if it's crap. <laughs> and stuff. But you know, I'm, yeah, I'm working on new demos. It's gonna hopefully, cause I don't know when we're gonna hit the road again. Uh, so my yeah. plan is to, at one point, just start putting out a single a month and try to get to that point. Yeah. So you craft each track? Yeah. 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 It's good. Yeah, I've been playing drums a lot now as well, poorly. So, no, it's because I'll, I'll show you my studio. One second. The drums are there. Uh, so you're that guy. You could pick up pretty much any instrument and get it to make a noise? Uh, yeah, to make a noise. So... <laughs> And oh wow no it's 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 like a t- the room's like 20 by 10 but it's got all my yeah no it's That's very perfect. fun yeah it's fun it's very functional so we can yeah i mean we made all of the last record here so that was a huge that was a i like i was like i don't know if i can make a record i'm like record a whole record myself i don't know if i could do that but with the other guys playing but yeah no it's good yeah and so how long did that take did it take you longer because it was in your home or was your process similar? It's funny. Um, the album was actually supposed to be produced by Chris Walla from uh, death cat for cutie. Initially mm-hmm. he was living in Montreal for a bit. So I met up with him and we were going to do that. But then my wife and I ended up buying this house. And so then I built the studio. So that kind of slowed things down, but we moved in in December. I started to record the album in January and it was an, it was like an ongoing thing until it got released. And I think we started September, September, October. So it took about a good, like nine months to get things going. I was in no rush. You know, I just wanted to take my time. It's the first time I was doing it here. So also like it's a new studio and I didn't know what it sounded like. And right. that's a big challenge. So. When you, um, when you start a project, do you have all the songs written or do you write as you go? Well, define project. You know, like, well, I, that's, that's a fair question. Um, when you started uh, Hollow, was Hollow written or like, did you know you were going to make an album? Um, I, had a, I, had a, I had side A. I, I, gotcha. I, had, I had side A and then I had ideas for the other songs. I had, 
Yeah, because I'm always recording song ideas every day and I'm always kind of processing it in my head. I'm like, okay, this could work with this part. And so I had all these things lying around and I would just play for the guys with like gibberish lyrics. And And yeah, but no, I mean, I knew I was going to make an album. I knew what the theme was going to be. That was all sorted. But right now I don't have that. I just have all these different ideas and I don't know if they all belong together. So that's why I'm kind of maybe just start putting out singles. Like I don't, I don't think people are buying much vinyl these days. If that's something like there was this time when vinyl sales were like going up and people wanted the physical thing. But now that everyone's home, I think there's less attachment to that. People are less attached to maybe materialistic things. Maybe that'll be the outcome of this whole pandemic. We're less attached to things. You know, we just want to be out there and off our computer, be around people again. But maybe uh, like the French suites, uh, it's going to be called Mr. Monsieur Lonely. So <laughs> we're all so lonely right now. But uh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, uh, I want to be respectful of your time. I see we're, uh, we're hitting nope. the top of the hour. Thank you so much for making time to talk to me. Hey, it was great. Great chatting with you. Thank you so much to Rishi Deer, and thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Remember that Spotlight On is available from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and most anywhere else podcasts can be snatched from. Spotlight On is produced and edited by Craig Snyder. Thank you to Ant Taylor and the entire Light crew. If you're interested in what we're up to at Light, visit light.com. That's L-Y-T-E dot com. And keep your feedback coming. You can reach me at lp at light.com. Thank you so much. Be safe and stay in touch.